Well, just to get us into the um, uh, stream of things that were involved here, we're talking about when mankind meets its maker, meaning the time when God meets us at the cross. And uh, I think you can beginning to see with the first um, three times, with actually two studies and now the third one today, in every one of these occasions, uh, what's being done is on a on a cosmic scale, which is a fancy way of saying it, it involves the whole world. Um, this is not done in a corner. I mean, you might say historically it's done in a corner, but in terms of what God's about, uh, it's for the whole world. So that's why Christ says, all authority is given to me and go into all the world. What he's done is uh, cosmic in its dimensions. So God is about a great work of what he does in Christ and his cross. First of all, it was the judgment of this world where all rivals were gathered together and were assessed by their treatment of the Son. He that accepts the Son has life. He that doesn't is condemned already because he doesn't. if you don't come to Christ, what are you hiding? And so forth. So the cross is a great judgment of the world. And it might be helpful for us. I find it helpful myself we look at what things people do and we think that is their main sin and then we'll argue endlessly about whether it's a sin or not. But somehow or another, talking about people's response to Christ settles the matter. Uh, if people don't want Christ, what are they hiding? He that comes to the light, uh, comes to the light which is Christ, that it may be seen that his deeds are wrought in God. Uh, so that's uh, the great expose, really, and uh, I find it helpful to see that as the measure of sin and even where the judgment of sin, uh, and that's the way it was working out in the preaching of the gospel, that you killed him. Second one it is, is the revelation of righteousness. God moves in on this scene and he does what is right. It's an astonishing thing that in this messy world, I mean, people trying to do in Russia what's right for Crimea, uh, or for, for, sorry, yes, for, for um, Ukraine, sorry, mental blank there. Uh, everybody tries to go out and present what they're doing as right. Um, but uh, when God moves in and he does what is right, what a scene it is. And God's idea of right includes you and me being judged right. Uh, that's some kind of right, isn't it? Don't get too much of that in the school board, schoolboy spat, do you? But it's what you get from the Son of God uh, that when God moves in and does what is right, it ends up that we're declared right and want to live right. And it's an amazing view of God doing what is right. And then thirdly today, God in Christ is reconciling all things. Notice there the cosmic dimension again, all things in heaven and in earth, it says in Colossians, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's where a title comes from. Uh, although there's a bit of a tang in my title, blood enough, now peace. Uh, um, when Christ's blood is shed, let that be enough blood on the floor. It's a bit of a, a tang to that, if you can pick it up, and uh, I think it'll become clear as we go through. Well, first of all, the Lord uh, summed us up, or he summed up his own nation, if I can be more precise, 
when he was uh, actually riding into Jerusalem and people were shouting and hurrah and so forth. Everybody loves a party and loves a celebration and loves a, a great character. A, a, if you like, there was this a personality thing here going on. Uh, people uh, were glad for him to be there and singing and whatever. But Jesus isn't all impressed. 19 and 41 of Luke says, When Jesus drew near, after all of this, uh, you know, the palm branches on the ground and the shouting of hallelujah and so forth, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even now knew the things that make for peace, but as it is, they are taken from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. He's referring to 70 AD when this literally happened. And, and uh, tear you to the ground and you and your children within you, not, not leave one stone upon another, uh, because you did not know the day of your visitation, that is Christ is amongst them, bringing peace. And they can't see it. Um, and uh, so they were... Israel was seeking their peace, if you like, peace of their own making, in creed and conformity, um, not too dissimilar to now, uh, and to control. Uh, they were trying to control Christ, bring him into order so that they could, their own creed of the law and the way they understood it could have its full place and conformity to that and nothing outside of it. Of course, quite some time they've been trying to kill Jesus because he was getting in the road of conformity. And we may have just put in there as a, you know, ideology. Uh, we use these words these days, but ideology, as far as I can see in the way we use the word, is, is an idea that's been turned into a doctrine. It becomes mandated. Uh, it's an ideology that you must follow in order to be right. And, um, but uh, and all of this, of course, is fulfilling what uh, was said back in Malachi 3 and verse 1 where it says, uh, in those days, John the Baptist came... Oh, I've got Matthew, not Malachi. Malachi 3.1. I send my messenger, uh, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, that is God, and the Lord whom you seek, which is Jesus now, will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and full of soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Jesus is coming to do business. He's coming to make peace. But the people don't know what makes for peace. That's, that's so he weeps because he knows that. And that's why Jesus on his way out to the cross says, don't weep for me. I find that one of the most astonishing things a man could ever say. I mean, he's just going to get crucified. And says, don't weep for me. It's astonishing, isn't it? The, the, the way in which Jesus can overlook his own sufferings and look at what you're doing to yourself. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, wouldn't you love this fella? Uh, pardon the common reference, but uh, it's an amazing thing. So Israel was seeking it in a wrong way, and soon, of course, they would spill blood. And later, as we've seen, it will be their own. And this brings Jesus to tears. The disciples aren't much better 
They're arguing about greatness. You know, great thing to go to communion, isn't it? Well, the first communion service, if you like, which was the uh, Passover feast, and Jesus said, here is my body, here is my blood, blood of the new covenant for the remission of sins. And what's on the minds of the disciples? Who's the greatest? Well, it's the way the text reads. It's there in the story. I mean, what's going on when you sit down to communion? <laughs> Can you see why Paul is so adamant that, uh, that you um, get things sorted out and not be arguing about who's the greatest? You see the, 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 the storms, if you like, of discontent that are there amongst the whole, the whole race, not just the people who are trying to kill Jesus, but amongst his friends as well. Uh, because peace is such a felt need, many uh, proffer peace, but falsely, and I won't go into the references in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but both of those prophets talk about those who are making peace, but making it falsely, saying, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, it's all right, you're not too bad a fellow, yeah, these people, yeah, they're, they're good, but nothing will go wrong. And so there was a false message of peace when God was bringing judgment. True peace is not based on ideology. It's not based on avoidance. You won't get peace by sitting in your room playing computer games or any other kind of diversion that's taking you away from what you really ought to be about. It's just worthwhile sometimes saying, where's your time going? Uh, And are we just avoiding issues because we've got a sense of discontent and we're trying to relieve it by simple, simple avoidance rather than looking at it? Um, it's uh, peace doesn't come like that on avoidance nor on just getting power everybody be right just be reasonable do it my way <laughs> that's supposed to be a joke but unfortunately it's not just a joke <laughs> it happens our basic discontent is with God if we could get that feeling uneasy it's not your neighbour really Feeling angry, it's not just your health, really. We've got to go to the core of things, don't we? Our basic discontent is with God. We're in no mood for a truce, and this shows in our relationships. Peace on earth is going to be for, and it's going to be, and always will be, as it was announced when Jesus was born, on those on whom God's favour rests. Peace to those, you know, um, joy to the world and peace to those on whom God's favour rests. There's peace. And that's what Calvin's song was talking about. And that's what we need, isn't it? So deeply and profoundly. And then the chaos before Jesus um, was crucified. Jesus promises peace to the apostles. This is why I just um, I just find it astonishing that the Lord just knows who we are. He knows what his disciples are up to and not up to and obviously is disappointed with their arguments and has to correct them uh, in that context. But here in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace. Now, it's not just any old peace. This is the peace that Jesus has when he lifts up his eyes and says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. For such, He was resting in God's will 
And he was at peace. And then he says, this peace I'm going to give to you. And he knows what's going on amongst the disciples while he's saying it. Not as the world gives to give aid to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. Um, so, uh, and he says it again in 1633. Um, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In critical word there, in me. Not in me, but in Jesus, you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Notice the cosmic dimensions of it. I've overcome the world. I mean, it's the whole world, you know, wars, rumours of wars, all sorts of chaos going on. Just don't worry, I've overcome the world. Uh, peace is not uh, getting away from things. Peace is having somebody who knows what's happening and keeping control. You see, peace and authority go together. Somebody's got to be there who ensures the peace. And politicians and uh, go about trying to make peace and keep the peace and so forth. And well, we may do what we can, but at the end of the day, you have to have somebody who's got all the facts and who's got all of the uh, authority to act, to actually declare the peace. So that's what Jesus is announcing to the apostles. Now, if you've noticed in the studies that we've gone through, we've done a couple of things. We've mostly looked at the history, if you like, of, of what actually happens, because we want to see the actuality of the cross. Uh, on the other hand, we need to hear what the apostles say to us, and of course the prophets beforehand. So there's um, this two-part thing here. So first of all, just looking at the actual events of the cross. Jesus Christ is led out to be crucified, and this story is in Luke 23, which I won't read now, but you will know the story very well. Jesus is crucified, and um, two criminals are taken out uh, for economy, I suppose, from the point of view of the Romans uh, garrison there. Well, we've got two other fellows here that have got to be done sometime, so we take them out. I mean, it might have been as simple as that. Uh, nothing very special about how Rome was going about stuff. So it so happens that there's two other criminals that are due to be... So they're taken out to do at the same time. Two criminals crucified with Jesus have lived violently and selfishly. They're criminals. They're basically described as criminals or robbers. Um, some think they might have been uh, people who started uprisings, but we don't really know. They're just they're certainly criminals. They've gone foul of the law. They've probably lived violently and selfishly. They don't know much about peace. One of them's taken peace from others, um, spilled their blood, but now he looks to Christ. He sees Jesus is in charge, even from his cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boy, talking about learning theology quick. That's amazing, isn't it? How, how quickly the impression that's come through to him as he watches what's happening. He sees Jesus in charge, even from his cross. He admits he deserves what he's getting. Now that's another miracle. This guy had gone out banging heads all his life probably, blaming the world for his troubles. No wonder he needs to be a, a robber. You know, look at all those rich people out there, selfish people. And do you know when he's, he, he's never taken responsibility for his own actions, but what well, he does now. And he asks for place in the kingdom Jesus is making. 
what's going on? Does he recall that Jesus has given help to many others? The stories of Jesus must have abounded. Has he noticed his unusual composure? And especially what does he think about Jesus asking for his father to forgive his tormentors? And then lastly, he asks to be remembered, which is a word used by God's covenant people when they look for mercy. Sorry, I don't have a reference there. I should have had more time to just put a reference there to show that that's so, but I think you'll know your Old Testament well enough. Lord, remember us. Don't forget us. Remember us. Remember the covenant. Um, We know we don't deserve anything, but remember us. Uh, And um, in fact, God himself says, I will remember my covenant. He asked to be remembered, a word used by God's covenant peoples, and his request is granted in the most luxurious of terms. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, which is a garden, by which he would have understood a place of rest, a place of heaven, if you like, uh, with Jesus. Same day. Now, I don't know, where do you, you talk about peace? Uh, this man, I don't know what he feels like now. We're not talking about feelings. We're talking about what's happening. And this man has been given peace because that same day he's going to be with Christ in paradise and his sins won't come into the question. He loses his arrogance and finds peace with God. Now, we need to just be quite frank about all of this and say there's no peace for Christ. And I don't know how one man gets so many things in his head at one time, but he can say all of that. And then within hours, and perhaps the last three hours, whatever, which there was darkness across the face of the deep, uh, Jesus says, My God, my God, not Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we know from elsewhere, from Galatians 3, Uh, We know from um, 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him to be sin. I don't know about you, but you can enjoy sin for a little while, but then it's rotten. Is that true? And um, the guilt of it, the shame of it, uh, you're disgusted with yourself. What does it mean? for the Son of God to be made sin and to have the shame of that and the guilt of that and the hopelessness of it uh, upon you. And then it also says that God made him a curse for us. That's the one that's in Galatians 3.13. So here you have him bearing sin and you have him bearing the determination of God to be rid of this rotten stuff. His disdain for everything that pollutes his creation and Christ is made that. And is it any wonder that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a reason why Jesus can speak with equanimity to his disciples before and after his death before his death and after his resurrection. And that's the reason, because he bears everything that stops us having peace. It's our sin and the rottenness of that and it's our disfavour with God that causes the deep distress of our hearts 
and that makes us agitate to have the circumstances changed because we don't want to change. But Jesus just, I don't think, um, I, I just love, <laughs> pardon me, but I just love Jesus. I mean, he's a man more than you could ever imagine. It was he who saw life's meaning clearly, was not fooled or swayed by what he saw, did no wrong, nor restlessly accused us, saw that we were hiding from our sins. All the Father's love was then released, waiting not till all men understood. Jesus bore the wrongness of our blame and led us to his Father free of shame. That's our Saviour. So Jesus makes peace for us by the blood of his cross, literally. He does it. Blood is a reference to Israel's sacrifices and in one sense we're just stepping back a bit from this to see what's going on. Um, this lovely picture, and, the, and the, you can see it in about three or four type places in Leviticus 4. It's got a, a description for Israel's sacrifices. If a, a priest sins, this is what he's to do. If somebody else sins, this is what he's to do. You know, one of the leaders of the... If somebody else, a, a commoner, sins, this is what he's to do. And in each case, it says he's to bring a lamb. <clears throat> or in the case of a priest, it's a, um, a bull, I think. But uh, he, he bring, say, bring a lamb. And he places his hands on the lamb. A simple act of transference. And then the lamb is killed. Couldn't be clearer. Well, let me just ask you. Have you put your hands on the lamb of God? I don't know that you're doing very much different to that when you go and take communion. Jesus said, this is my body. Now, if somebody offers you a kidney and you need one, you're pretty grateful. But what about somebody offering you their life? This is my body. And this is the blood of the new covenant. Um, all the covenants were made with the shedding of blood. There's not going to be a truce, pardon me, not a truce, there's going to be a peace without there's a covenant that sets out all the terms and all the terms are met. And here the Lord says, here's the blood of the covenant and this is signed, sealed and delivered. It's yours. This is the way you're going to live now. And so he offers the blood of the covenant. Now, I don't know, shouldn't we have a lump in our throat while we swallow the bread? Almost choke on the drink. The man's given us his life. Um, and um, so that's what you, the, that was doing. The blood signifies um, what happens when our sin is transferred to the lamb. Now, of course, this didn't pay for their sins, but it was showing what God had in mind down the track. And now Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way John the Baptist sees him. Right from the beginning. Quite amazing, isn't it? After the resurrection, Jesus now comes and announces peace to the apostles. Um, we're used to this, and in one sense it was a common greeting, um, and still is across not just a, a Jew, Jewish uh, society, but also Arabic society amongst the Muslims. Peace be, shalom. 
Uh, and um, uh, but if you are one of the disciples and you've seen the bedlam that's just been had, and if you knew the bedlam was going on inside your own heart when your whole career's finished, we've been disciples of Jesus for three years. We sold our boats. Well, they made the they didn't because they could pull them out again, couldn't they? They went fishing. <laughs> so, but do you know what I mean? Everything's lost. And Jesus just comes and says, peace be with you. Now, that was conveying more than, say, hi, wasn't it? Uh, he was conveying something profound, particularly when he said beforehand, my peace I give to you. And he's gone through hell and back, literally. And now he says, well, now, here it is. Peace be with you. Um, this must have come to them with power because they haven't performed well. Not at all. And Jesus is uh, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. I'll just read that because it's lovely. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. The prophet says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to his people, Zion, your God reigns. Where does peace come from? It comes from the person in charge. Peace has nothing to do with feelings. Well, put it, say that again. Peace never starts just with feelings. Peace depends on who's in charge. And that results in feelings, which are great. (laughs) Bring it on. But we need to know who's in charge. So Jesus announces peace to the apostles and fulfills. And that verse is taken up, as you can see from the references there, uh, in a couple of places. (coughs) Well, Thomas, in that setting, uh, gets the mighty, mighty God bit from Isaiah 9. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. That's quite something, isn't it? We're talking about David's son who's coming. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But see the God bit in there? To do something as magisterial as to proclaim peace in the midst of what had just happened Thomas recognises his God. That's what's going on. That's the natural meaning of the terms. He wasn't just saying, oh my God. He was looking at Jesus and he was saying, my God, my Lord. It's incredible, isn't it? You see someone that makes peace like this and you know it's got to come from above. And his, this, this worship is elicited from him. It's the doubting Thomas. Um, we get it gets that name because he's uh, it was just only because of his calendar. He just wasn't there the first week. Uh, probably all the others had the same problem. But anyway, uh, he now knows that Jesus uh, is the, his God, reaching down to him to touch what nobody else could have ever touch. Jesus now. Teaching now focuses on his kingdom all right, for 40 days, according to Acts 1. <clears throat> Jesus teaches about the kingdom. It doesn't tell you any other topics. 
there is a, <coughs> a, a suggestion that um, there was a document around uh, in the early days of the church that uh, listed all of the things that, uh, that the apostles believed about the fulfilment of the Old Testament. And uh, because the way the apostles talk about it is so common right across, Peter, Paul, James, whatever, they all seem to quote the same text and give the same meanings. And so it's not impossible to think that the great statements in Acts or the document, all of the, um, what do you call them, the speeches in Acts, are referencing what Jesus actually taught in those 40 days. But he was talking about the kingdom of God. This is how God reigns. This is how the reign of God is going to be managed. And here's your part in the reign of God. That's where the peace comes from. It's announcing peace. <clears throat> now, Paul, um, if we can move out, if you like, from the history side of things to the uh, to the apostles who now literally go out and do exactly what Jesus has said to go into all the world and um, to pronounce this peace that he announces in Colossians 1.19. We have it spelled out and also in chapter 2 that we'll reference in a moment, but just let me read these verses to us. Um, verse 19, two nine, uh, Colossians 1.19, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, so words reconcile and peace go together, um, uh, same in Ephesians uh, and uh, Romans, I think, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh. Where does it happen? In a committee meeting after the resurrection? No, the reconciliation takes place on the cross. That's what it's saying, isn't it? He's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's interesting that the uh, when you're talking, and I think that comes later, I'll just uh, wait until it comes up in my notes. Um, so uh, Paul explains this. The first thing, he says, you who once were alienated, there's the lack of peace. Hostile in mind, there's the lack of peace. Doing evil deeds, there's the cause of the lack of peace. We don't like God. We avoid the things he wants us to do and perhaps not in the brazen way of the repenting criminal but decidedly and dangerously. Don't muck with sin. It's dangerous and it's determined. We tend to spill blood. We do evil deeds, in other words. Uh, This can be filled out, if you like, here. I'm just using my imagination but I think I'm also doing a bit of inward looking and I'm probably looking around at a few of my good friends as well. We think God doesn't matter or we think he's against us. Certainly referring to many people that we know and love in this community, isn't it? We think God doesn't matter or we think he's against us. The world is all we've got then. That's awful, isn't it? The world's all we've got. Fancy that. So many people, that's all they've got. 
No wonder they have to get on the government all the time and get so angry. The world's all we've got and our demands on what can we give us uh, on what we need uh, keep increasing. Uh, something about, you know, the, the great word of um, the world is more, 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 isn't it? Uh, and the reason why we want more is because what we've already got is never enough. A human heart cannot be satisfied without God. And the world will never be too big enough to meet all the needs we feel. We become restless, demanding, agitated, intolerant, bitter, and if nothing stops it, violent. Not everyone gets to the end of this sequence, fortunately, but the seeds of discontent are deep. Many people, it just turns them into uh, being into themselves and into their own rooms and into their own little oyster. They make us complain, take sides, look for someone to blame and to punish. Uh, so Isaiah 48 says, there's no peace, says God, for the wicked. End of subject. And if it doesn't get some kind of re- remediation, they make us spill blood. And it happens. Now God, can you see, has gone to the heart of the issue. Uh, guilt is what maintains the rage we have against God. And rightly understood, I think, against people. While there's any guilt left, there won't be peace. I think that's uh, an equation, if you like. Guilt maintains the rage we have against God. We can't live truly. But what if God nails his complaint about us? If we go across now to chapter 2, verse 13 of Colossians, it says, You who are dead in your trespasses... That's uh, breaking laws, an uncircumcision, that is without, without the covenants of mercy and the, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he said, set aside, nailing to his cross and... Uh, disarming their rulers and authorities, which we'll come to later on. But God nails his complaint about us to the cross where Jesus is dying. It's not just gone off into the ether. God's got a record of of who we are and what we've done. You can't just imagine your way out of sin. There's a record of it. And God knows the full record on the good side more than I'll ever be able to manage to, to, to understand. And he's got the whole lot there and he lands the whole lot, nails it to Christ's cross. That's it. That's where it is. We just need to know these things, don't we? Need to know the unequivocal. We need to know the completeness of it. Nothing's been swept under the carpet. Nowhere, ever. It's all been taken account of. The blood of Christ, and this is dipping into Hebrews, which I won't look up, but the Christ, blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. What about that? You can see a poem that I've written if you go to our Corrie website, and there's a poem, quite a longish one there, about conscience, which just described my own battle, dealing with a, a conscience that wouldn't get settled with the blood of Christ. It just needs to come under authority. What's master? What you think about yourself? Well, if you're such a rotten person, why are you taking so much notice of what you think? That's the, I mean, I've got a reason with myself somehow or another. I'm probably corny, but 
I mean, why does your opinion matter? What does God think? And conscience has to come under the word of God. Is that true? Conscience is a great gift to us. It keeps us alerted. But conscience has to have a word, has to have a master. It has to come under the word of God. It needs to be educated by the word of God. So there we have, we, and then he ends up in Hebrews talking about coming to the God of peace. What about that? God of peace. What's the natural state of God? Not turmoil. It's peace. God is happy with himself. He's happy with what he's done in the death of Christ. And because of that, he's happy with you. End of subject. He's the God of peace. And God's idea of peace, the same as the idea of right, is not just peace for himself, but peace for you and for me. That's the astonishing thing about God, and it's all played out, actually there in flesh and blood in in Jesus Christ, in his history. And again, you can go to, same as we've gone to Colossians 2 to see what God does with our sins. Colossians 5 is the verse that says, God made him to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again in Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith. You see, if we're still dealing with guilt rather than being justified, there's no peace. But being justified... That is, God Almighty looks at you and says, I like what I see. We're justified by faith. He doesn't see me strutting around trying to pretend I'm something. He sees me looking up like a small boy at Christ and saying, Christ, you're wonderful. And God loves that. And he welcomes us in full bore. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice And we have access to grace in which we stand and we rejoice as more to come in hope of sharing the glory of God. And as I tried to fit in last week, probably too much, but we even rejoice in our tribulations. I mean, there's got to be some head of steam to get you there, doesn't it? Well, what's the head of steam? The head of steam is peace with God. Your heart's at rest. So even then these awful things happen around us and in us. Uh, we rejoice in our tribulation, knowing that even this is going to be somehow for good because he's going to teach us some patience. Boy, phew, how many times that one's come to me. <laughs> uh, we have need of patience, you see, and patience develops character and character develops hope. We want to have a, more hope. Well, guess where you're going to get some hope from? Boom, trouble. <laughs> some patience and uh, some character and then some hope. Isn't it interesting? And hope doesn't leave us ashamed. Why? Because the love of God. Not just at the end, but all the way through. It's been pouring into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, uh, all of these verses in uh, Colossians, Corinthians and Romans are telling us that God's had to deal with the question of guilt in order to make us have peace with God. 
If God does this, and Romans is lovely because then in verse 11, 9 and 11 it says, if God does this reconciling while we're still fighting him, we can be sure that there's no anger left in God towards us now that we're reconciled to him. That'd be great. Just imagine for the rest of your life. You'll, ne- you'll always know that there's no, not a skerrick, anywhere of anger in God about you. Are you getting a picture now of how Jesus can rise from the dead and say to these compromised, fumbling, failing disciples, peace be with you? That's an authoritative statement coming from Christ who is God. So God has provided now this peace and can you see the relationship between this and the spilling of blood? Christ has spilt his blood and I'm just saying, well look, just let that be blood enough. Don't go around knocking heads. Blood enough. Now peace. And uh, a lovely reference which we haven't got time to spill, fend out now, but another classic passage on peace is Ephesians 2 when God says he's made peace for Jew and Gentile and he says the wall of hostility has been broken down. Why? Because there's one way for the Jews to come and there's the same way for the Gentile to come and he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. If you haven't got peace, you have to join a party and have your little enclave when you can have a little, little nook of peace. But if you come to God, he's reconciling the world to himself. And so all of the work, do you see we're all getting to God the same way. We've got something in common with the whole of humanity. There's only one way. And I find it very interesting that Paul uh, shows in the other letters of Galatians and so forth. He says there's not only neither Jew nor Gentile, but there's neither male nor female. Just think of all the gender issues today. Uh, and there's neither, uh, there's neither this race nor that race, Jew or Gentile. Just think of all the racial issues today. Do you follow all the big divides that we join because we are agitated and ill at ease? God says, I've broken them down. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And you'll have peace with God. And you'll have a peace you can share with others. Let's just give thanks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And may your kingdom come. May your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. For you are the God of peace. And you have made peace for us with the blood of your Son. And now, Father, you've called us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And uh, so we just uh, give ourselves to you, Father, and ask that that shall be the, the case for us as we go back to our situations, our homes and responsibilities and troubles in some cases. Father, may it be that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts for your name's sake. Amen.